This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Imagine it's mid-October and the year is 732 CE. The Umayyad Caliphate, a vast and powerful Islamic empire, has been steadily expanding its territory across the Iberian Peninsula. Their sights are now set on Christian Gaul, home to the Frankish kingdom, ruled by a shrewd and ambitious mayor of the palace, Charles Martel. Led by Abd al-Rahman al-Ghafiqi, a seasoned military commander, the Umayyad army, a formidable force of cavalry and infantry, crosses the Pyrenees Mountains and enters Gaul. Their objective? To conquer the Frankish kingdom and spread Islam across the continent. Charles, alerted to the Umayyad invasion, musters his forces, a combination of Frankish warriors and Aquitanian allies. Determined to defend his kingdom and protect the Christian faith, he rallies his troops and prepares to meet the Umayyad army in decisive battle. On October 10th, the two armies converge midway between the cities of Tours and Poitiers in what is now France. The Umayyad forces, known for their swift and agile cavalry, initially gain the upper hand, pushing back the Frankish infantry. Charles, however, proves to be a master tactician. He orders his infantry to form a tight defensive shield, absorbing the Umayyad cavalry charges without breaking ranks. This strategy exhausts the Umayyad horsemen, leaving them vulnerable to Frankish counterattacks. As the battle rages on, Charles unleashes his secret weapon, a hidden reserve of cavalry. These fresh troops charge into the fray, turning the tide of the battle in favor of the Franks. At some point, a panic ensues amongst the Muslim troops that the Franks are stealing their loot stashed away in their camp. Some turn back to the camp to protect their booty. Other troops mistake this for an official retreat. In the ensuing chaos, Abdi al-Rahman al-Ghafiqi, the Umayyad commander, is killed. His death demoralizes the Umayyad forces, who continue to retreat in disarray. The Franks pursue the retreating Umayyad army, inflicting heavy losses. When the fog clears, the Umayyad Muslim invasion is halted 
and the Frankish kingdom under Charles Martel emerges as a powerful force in Christendom. Historian Edward Gibbon writes that Tours was one of, quote, the events that rescued our ancestors of Britain and our neighbors of Gaul from the civil and religious yoke of the Quran, end quote. He continues, saying that if it weren't for the Battle of Tours, quote, perhaps the interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Muhammad, end quote. Oh, my. Yeah. A circumcised people. Yeah, we would all, they would all be circumcised. Um, oh, <laughs> the most important part is what happens to their penises, right. obviously. I so yeah. um, this week, we are finishing our series on the last of the five C's, contingency, by exploring the Battle of Tours, also called the Battle of Poitiers, uh, which has been remembered as the only event preventing the Islamization of Western civilization. But as always, it's so much more complicated than that. I'm Marissa. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters, and especially our fabulous Augur and Excavator-level patrons. Hannah, Carl, Iris, Lauren, Edward, Colin, Susan, Jesse, Denise, Maria, Karen, and Lisa. We cannot thank you enough. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. What really happened that October day in 732 is just as much up for debate as are its consequences and long-term legacy. So let's complicate the story a little bit, starting with the Muslim background leading up to the battle. By 709, the Arab Umayyad Caliphate, its capital in Damascus, which is Syria, had subjugated the ancient and powerful kingdoms of North Africa. The Amazai, the largest ethnic group in North Africa and historically referred to as Berbers, were rapidly absorbed into the majority Arab Islamic world. Umayyad forces were led by Arab generals, an indicator that Arabs enjoyed ethnic supremacy in the Islamic world at this point. But the ranks of their infantry swelled with Amazai after 709. The Islamic army that conquered Iberia was unusual in that it was commanded by an Algerian Amazai, Tariq ibn Ziyad, um, in English just known as Tariq or Tarek. The ethnic pluralism of the medieval Islamic world is often missed in the narratives of Islamic expansion. This causes a few interpretive problems that we'll discuss in a bit. There's another aspect of the Umayyads' entry into Spain that is often glossed over. They were invited. The Visigoths had consolidated power in Spain under King Rodrigo, but the Visigoths also had an outpost in North Africa called Cayuta. And fun fact, Cayuta is still an autonomous Spanish city in North Africa today. The governor of Cayuta was an enigmatic figure named Count Julian, who began his career as a Byzantine civil servant, we think as the last Byzantine exarch of Africa. At some point, Count Julian submitted to the Visigoths and sent his daughter, Florinda, to Rodrigo's court as a show of his loyalty. 
At the same time, the Umayyad subjugation of the former Byzantine exarchate of Africa was almost complete, Keuta being one exception. Then, Count Julian received word that King Rodrigo had raped Florinda while she was under his care. Seeking revenge, Julian reached an agreement with the Muslim governor of Algeria, our old friend Tariq. Julian asked Tariq to invade the Visigoths and bring their kingdom to its knees. Tariq agreed and brought the power of the Umayyad army down on the Visigoths in Spain. So it was that the Umayyad's first entry into Iberia was by invitation. However, it's likely that Tariq was using Julian's invitation as an opportunity to continue the Umayyad expansion. Once Tariq fulfilled Julian's contract, he and his army continued to raid and subjugate the peoples of Iberia. There's disagreement about the long-term goals of the Amazigh Umayyad force. Popular histories, based on dubious medieval chronicles, argue that Tariq and his army were intent on permanent conquest from the start. For example, Theophanes wrote that Tariq had the Umayyad boats burned after the soldiers disembarked, attributing to him the following statement, quote, We have not come here to return. Either we conquer and establish ourselves here, or we will perish, end quote. Author and critic Raymond Ibrahim takes Theophanes' word for it. This situates the Muslim incursions into southern France as a coherent jihad, the logical next step in their conquest of the Mediterranean world. Please note that Theophanes is a sainted Christian and Raymond Ibrahim is a hostile critic of Islam, writing works named things like Defenders of the West, the Christian heroes who stood against Islam. So he also has an agenda. Most historians think this is a mistake. For example, historian Olivia Remy Constable argues that irrespective of the Umayyad's designs on Iberia, conquering above the Pyrenees, which are the mountains that separate Spain and France, was not a Muslim objective. Rather, the Muslims used Iberia as a base for razias, or raids. Their activities in southern France were temporary and motivated by booty, not conquest or settlement. This suggests that even if the Battle of Tours had not been won by the Franks, Muslim conquest did not necessarily follow. In fact, Muslims resisted traveling to northwestern Europe altogether. This was partially for climatic and racist reasons. 10th century geographer Al-Masudi wrote of the West, quote, The power of the sun is weak. Cold and damp prevail in their regions, and snow and ice follow one another in endless succession. The warm humor is lacking from Europeans. Their bodies are large, their natures gross, meaning like fat, um, their manners harsh, their understanding dull, and their tongues heavy. Their color is so excessively white that it passes from white to blue. Their hair is lank and reddish because of the prevalence of damp mists, end quote. I love it. <laughs> It'd be that's uh, it would be such a good way to um uh explore like the humors and yes the, and the differences in sort of bodies like the way bodies are understood in different cultures that's I re- that's really interesting. Yeah, based on climate. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Like I I've taught that in terms of the Spanish in North America. Um, right. And how they use the sort of the humors to, to make sense of like the masculinity of indigenous people. But mm-hmm. I, this would be an interesting sort of um, additional example of that. Right. 
Muslim maps showed Northwestern Europe as a barbarian-filled land near the edge of the world. Their lack of interest can be traced to the lack of Muslim facilities above the Pyrenees. There were no mosques, halal butchers, or Muslim institutions that they were used to in majority Muslim regions. Lastly, Christians, whom Muslims had always lived amongst in the Near East, were given aman, or safe conduct, in Muslim lands. Muslims were not guaranteed safe conduct in Europe. So these circumstances made Northwestern Europe an unattractive and hostile place for Islamic armies to conquer and settle. So it's possible that even if the Battle of Tours had gone the other way, that Europe would still not have been Muslim. Historian James T. Palmer agrees with Constable. Palmer's study of Arabic sources suggests that, quote, there was no sense that a full-scale invasion was planned for either political or religious reasons. For the Arabs, there were simply more interesting things going on elsewhere. Palmer even cites the work of 19th century French historian Jules Michelet, who wrote, quote, there was more to fear from the Germanic invasion, in other words, from Charles's Franks, then from the Saracens, and we'll explain what he means there in just a sec. One of the best pieces of evidence that the Muslim incursion into France was merely raiding activity is the fact that Muslim armies never ventured north of the Pyrenees again after 732. Most armies bent on conquest don't allow one lost battle to foil their plans for world domination. Sir Edward Creasy claims that Muslim disinclination to spread above the Pyrenees after tour was simply evidence of how violent and humiliating the defeat was for them. This is, of course, possible. But scholars of the Umayyads point out that this could also be explained by the disintegration of the Umayyad Caliphate and the rise of the Abbasids 18 years after the defeat in tour. The Abbasids defeated the Umayyads in 750 and moved their capital from Damascus to Baghdad. Most of the Umayyads were killed, except for one Umayyad prince named Abdi el-Rahman, not the same Rahman as from the Battle of Tour. Um, this Umayyad prince fled to al-Andalus, which is Muslim Spain, and set up rule there. Some territories in Muslim Iberia pledged fealty to the new Abbasids, while others remained faithful to the Spanish Umayyads. This complicated political fragmentation probably has something to do with the diversion of Muslim priorities in southern Gaul. Back to the narrative leading up to the battle. After subduing the Visigoths, Tariq was ordered back to Damascus in 714. Muslim Spain, then called Al-Andalus, was ruled by Arab governors dispatched from Damascus for the next few decades. During that time, Muslim armies crossed the Pyrenees periodically. It's unclear exactly what these raids looked like, but raiding was consistent with Amazigh custom. They had always been fierce raiders, as acknowledged by all of the colonial powers who had ruled the Mediterranean, the Byzantines, Romans, Greeks, and Phoenicians slash Carthaginians. Olivia Remy Constable argued in 2009 that there was no permanent Muslim settlement north of Narbonne. When she wrote that, it was true to the best of our knowledge. But in 2016, archaeologists uncovered Muslim graves in Nîmes, which is 90 miles northeast of Narbonne. These individuals were buried in the 700s, according to Muslim custom, on their right sides oriented toward Mecca. Their DNA was tested, and the results showed they were of Amaziah or Berber descent. The graves do not appear to be part of a battle site, 
and the dead were not injured as you would expect them to be in battle. The gravesite was connected to the former Roman urban site of Nîmes. So the archaeologists concluded that they were indeed Muslims living in southern France during the 700s, and they were numerous enough to retain their culture and successfully perform Muslim funerary customs. So, the very unsatisfying answer is that it's unclear what the border of Spain and France looked like in terms of ethnic and religious diversity in the decades between Tariq's conquest of Spain and the Battle of Tours. It's possible that southern France was being used as a hinterland for Muslim Amazigh raids. It's also possible that Muslim Amazigh people had integrated to some degree into southern French society after the Umayyads took Spain. Some Muslim populations in southern France may have even enjoyed a special protected status among the Celtic and Germanic peoples living in the area. Either way, it suggests that southern Gaul was more diverse than we previously thought. They weren't all white, devout Christians quaking in their boots in the face of a Muslim jihad. We've discussed the Muslim historical background to the Battle of Tours. Now, let's explore the European Christian historical background. One thing that may come as a surprise to you is that southern Gaul, or France, was quite ethnically diverse. There were significant minorities of Jews, as well as Romano-Hispanic peoples, the Basques, Amazigh Muslims, and smaller numbers of Persians, Arabs, and Slavs of both Muslim and Christian faiths. The south of Gaul was home to Romano-Celts, concentrated heavily in the westernmost area of Aquitaine. These people's ancestors were Celtic Gauls, who were conquered by Julius Caesar and Romanized to varying degrees. They had been converted to Christianity quite early and tended to be more devout than the Germanic tribes in the area who were new to the religion. Southern Gaul was also home to the Romano-Celts' regional rivals, the Germanic Franks, at this point organized under the Merovingian dynasty. The Merovingians were initially an impressive centralized power in Gaul, but by the early 700s their power had been gutted. They remained rulers in name only. The real power in Gaul lay with the mayor of the palace, Karl, usually anglicized as Charles. Prior to the Battle of Tours, Charles had not yet taken on the surname Martel, which means the hammer, but this is the same Charles we named at the top of the show. Charles was the son of a Frankish noblewoman named Alpida and Papan of Herstal, who also served as the Frankish mayor of the palace. This episode what? is going to kill me. <laughs> sometimes Pepin, like he's pronounced Pepin, Pepin, like in French it would be Pepin, and sometimes it's Pepin, sometimes yeah. it's Pippin. I like Pippin. I think it sounds cool, but... Um, I like Pippin too, but I'm so I'm well trained by Jacques Pepin. Pepin. To say Pepin. Yes. So a civil war ensued among Pepin's heirs when he died. Most of the conflict occurred in Austrasia, the northeastern territory of the Kingdom of the Franks, which was firmly under Pepin's control during his lifetime. To make matters worse, a smaller territory called Neustria used this chaos to seek sovereignty from Austrasia. They allied themselves with another Germanic ethno-linguistic group, the Frisians, to challenge Pepin's heirs. Charles emerged from this melee in 718, mostly victorious, only having suffered one defeat during his entire military career. As a result of this military success, Charles earned the loyalty of an important Christian missionary, Willibrord, and his abbey, 
of Echternach. Charles was a Christian, but he and the Franks were newly converted. By most metrics, they were not particularly devout. In fact, the historical record shows that Charles and his armies targeted Christian communities during the two decades between his ascendancy and the Battle of Tours. These decades were characterized by Charles's expansion and consolidation of Frankish power. Charles was particularly brutal to Aquitanian Christians who had been converted much earlier and were, by all accounts, more Christian than the Franks. Charles's men looted gold and silver from Aquitanian churches. In the decades preceding Tours, he also attacked the Saxons and the Frisians. The dominant narrative, however, depicts a united Christian Europe hanging their last hopes of a Christian West on their international hero, Charles Martel. We know for a fact that this is just a fantasy. The political and military alliances forged up to the Battle of Tours tells us a lot about how Charles and the Austrasians were viewed by other Europeans. Loyalties did not always split along religious lines. Remember that the Aquitanians, present, um, presently like sort of southwest France, were Celtic people who had been converted to Christianity much earlier than the Franks. They were ruled by Count Udo, sometimes anglicized as Odo the Great. In 714, three years after the Umayyads invaded Spain, and the same year that Tariq was sent back to Damascus, Count Udo was busy completing the unification of Aquitaine. By 718, the Umayyads had assumed control of the Basque country, or the sort of area of the Western Pyrenees, and a territory between the Basque country and Aquitaine. They called this territory Septimania. Count Udo had to first protect his newly sovereign Aquitaine from the Umayyads in 721. Udo asked Charles Martel and the Franks for aid in facing the Umayyads, and Charles declined. At that point, Charles's command over Gaul was comparatively tenuous, and he didn't have a standing army. So much for an international Christian hero. Right. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just being (laughs) dramatic. (laughs) So, Udo faced the Umayyads alone in 721 to defend Aquitaine. And he won a resounding victory at what is now called the Battle of Toulouse. Note that it was Udo, then, who was the first, quote-unquote, Frenchman to defeat the Umayyads, not Charles Martel. Udo's victory was celebrated by Pope Gregory II, who labeled him as a champion of Roman Catholic Christianity and acknowledged Aquitaine's sovereignty. So there was some sense that religion mattered, to the Pope at least, which is no surprise there because he's the Pope, but it's unclear how passionate Udo was about his new accolade. Udo did not defend his territory as a Christian facing Muslims. He defended it as a sovereign territory resisting invasion. The proof is in the pudding. After his victory at Toulouse, Udo knew that Martel would aim to incorporate Aquitaine into his growing empire in Gaul, despite the fact that Udo and Martel had a peace treaty in place. So, Udo forged an alliance with the Muslims. He didn't quite ally himself with the Umayyad Caliphate proper. At this point in Umayyad history, some Amazai commanders, angered at the Arabs' mistreatment of the Amazai in North Africa, had rebelled against the caliphate and set up their own sovereign states in Europe. 
Yudo married his daughter, Lampesia, to one of these rebels, the Muslim Amazigh governor of Septimania, Uthman ibn Naisa. We're going to call him Uthman because that's what he called himself. But the Franks referred to him as Manuza, and we felt like it was worth mentioning that Uthman and Manuza were one and the same. <sighs> to make matters even more confusing, part of Septimania eventually became Catalonia. So Uthman is often referred to as the governor of Catalonia. But it's all the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> After Udo and Uthman struck their treaty, Muslim raids of Aquitaine ended and Udo enjoyed a small interlude of peace. But Udo was right to be worried because Charles Martel did indeed invade Aquitaine in 731 after subduing the Saxons. Charles ransacked Aquitaine several times and seized Aquitanian territory, obviously breaking his and Udo's peace treaty. This was bad luck for Udo and Uthman, because at the exact same moment that Charles attacked Aquitaine, the Umayyads attacked Uthman, seeking revenge for his rebellion. Neither ally could help the other. The Umayyad army, led by Abdu Rahman al-Gafiki, who will become important in a minute, killed Uthman and took Yudo's daughter, Lampegia, as a prisoner. She was shipped off to serve as a concubine in a harem in Damascus. Oh no. Yeah. Poor Lampegia. With Yudo's armies defeated, Charles retreated back to Austrasia to regroup. But Yudo's bad luck did not stop there. After being defeated by Charles and hearing of the death of his ally and the imprisonment of his daughter, it became clear that Abdul Rahman and his Umayyad army were intent on punishing Yudo for his alliance with a traitor to the caliphate. Yudo's forces faced the Umayyads again at Bordeaux. This time, he drank too much wine. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This time, he lost. With his forces decimated and his dreams of a sovereign Aquitaine disintegrating in real time, Udo made the hard decision to retreat to Austrasia and appeal to Charles Martel for help. Charles agreed to help Udo engage the Umayyads, but only under one condition. Udo had to give up his dream of a sovereign Aquitaine and accept Charles as his overlord. Right. So the reason there's so many different names for all these territories is because they're in the process of being consolidated. So there's Austrasia, Nutria, right, and right. stuff like that. And then... Um, they're right, changing hands, Exactly. Too. And the Saxon Saxony right. also is kind of like, you know, basically Martel is conquering all these places and turning them into Francia, which will soon become France. Um, so that's why it's kind of so complicated and there's so many different terms for everything. So we're trying to keep it straight for people. Udo and Charles spent their summer of 732 building up their armies and choosing an advantageous battlefield outside of Poitiers while Abdul Rahman advanced towards them. There's some disagreement about the ethnic makeup of Rahman's forces. They were believed to be primarily Amazigh or Berber warriors, but some sources indicate that Rahman received reinforcements of highly trained Arab cavalry from Yemen and the Levant before facing Odo and Bordeaux earlier that year, so those would have been Arabs. It's probably safe to say that the Umayyad army was ethnically mixed, and some were lifelong Muslims, while others were new converts. Charles's and Udo's armies were similar in that they were ethnically mixed, containing Celtic Gauls, Romano Gauls, which are Romanized Celts, Franks, and various other subjugated Germanic peoples. They too ranged from devout lifelong Christians to new converts. 
This is all to say that it's unlikely that either side viewed the engagement at Tours as a chapter in a much larger, more important Muslim jihad or a Christian crusade. Critics of Islam, like Raymond Ibrahim, again, not a trained historian, point to the fact that Rahman and his forces laid waste to the French countryside, quote, despoiling every church and monastery in their path. But that's because that's where the wealth was. Charles Martel himself, a Christian, did the same in Aquitaine, Saxony, and Friesland. So, as Ibrahim should know, using the pillaging of churches to argue that this was a jihad is sloppy at best and disingenuous at worst. And and another thing to point out, too, is that Charles, you know, did eventually go to the church for an alliance with the church at a certain point. But that's because, again, that's where the money was. He didn't go to the church because he was like, oh, my God, I'm so devout and I, like, want to be the leader of Christianity. Right, that's right, not what right. it was about. It's because that's where the money was. Right. Um, right. So right. popular histories of the Battle of Tours also tend to emphasize certain aspects of the battle that serve Orientalist purposes. We discuss Orientalism extensively in other episodes, such as our Order of Assassins episode, so we won't go too far down that rabbit hole here. But Orientalism essentially refers to an anti-Muslim, anti-Near East prejudice that can be found in Western culture. This prejudice often portrays Islam and the Near East as exotic, despotic, fanatical, and sinister. The scholar who coined the term, Edward Said, describes the 19th century colonial context wherein Orientalism first developed. But part of this context was also a revival in the historical memory of the Crusades. No, yeah, no, this is where it gets very interesting. To I me. have Sarah's approval. Not that the rest of it isn't interesting, but it's just, it's fascinating how this all, <laughs> yeah, th- this history becomes a kind of proxy war. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Victorian historians and antiquarians love to romanticize the Crusades using teleological arguments about the East-West divide. Our Rise and Fall in the Queen City episode describes teleological histories very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very good. Mm -hmm. Teleology is essentially crafting your historical interpretations according to the outcome you already know. The Victorians were masters of teleological histories, and the Battle of Tours is perhaps the best example of this practice. From their Victorian context, scholars like Edward Gibbon and Sir Edward Creasy looked back to the Battle of Tours and projected their Orientalist mindset on the medieval battle. They situated the battle as both a jihad and a crusade, where East met West and was repulsed by devout Christians seeking to protect their religion and their love of the West from fanatical, democracy-hating Muslims. As Creasy put it, quote, the Battle of Tours is regarded as one of the decisive battles of the world. It decided that Christians, not Muslims, should be the ruling power of Europe. The implication for Creasy is that this was a lucky near miss. 19th century German poet and literary Karl Wilhelm Friedrich Schlegel called the Battle of Tours a mighty victory and claims that, quote, the arms of Charles Martel saved and delivered the Christian nations from the West from the deadly grasp of all destroying Islam. Um, He had very (laughs) strong arms. (laughs) I'm so funny. German historian Leopold von Ronck 
interpreted the Battle of Tours as a Christian crusade against both Islam to the south and Germanic pagans to the north. Quote, on one side, Mohammedanism threatened to overspread Italy and Gaul, and on the other, the ancient idolatry of Saxony and Friesland once more forced its way across the Rhine. In this peril of Christian institutions, a youthful prince of Germanic race, Karl Martel, arose as their champion, maintaining them with all the energy which the necessity for self-defense calls forth, and finally extended into new regions. <laughs> they are so f***ing dramatic. It's so ridiculous. Oh, I know. I, They're, yeah. But note how he says, oh, well, it's all self-defense, but then also Karl Martel conquered a bunch of other regions. <laughs> And it's like, right, that's right, not right. self-defense. Um, They're just ignoring yeah. <laughs> yeah. So weird. So um, this interpretation is contradicted by the relationship that Charles Martel's descendants had with Muslim Spain. Martel's son, Pepin the Short, reconquered southern Gaul from Muslim forces in 759. This act is often portrayed as part of a Christian crusade against Islam. But it's also possible that it was just an attempt to unite Gaul under one government. Moreover, Martel's grandson, Charlemagne, ever heard of him, maintained peaceful diplomatic relationships with the Abbasids in Spain. Charlemagne exchanged ambassadors with the Abbasids in Baghdad in a political alliance against the Umayyads usurper, uh, who was still ruling much of Muslim Spain. Charlemagne even mobilized Carolingian forces alongside the Abbasids against the Umayyad usurper Abd al-Rahman I in 778. Um, Charlemagne also got an elephant from the Abbasids. He was just like, dudes, I really want an elephant. And they were like, okay. And then they sent him an elephant. <laughs> nice. Um, so Charlemagne also valued his alliance with the Abbasids because it increased his power compared to his Christian rival, the Byzantines. We see no evidence that Charlemagne valued allying with his co-religionists against Muslims for religious reasons, right? He's not making his decisions on who he's allying with right. um, based on religion. It has nothing to do with it, actually. Right, right, yeah. The Battle of Tours became the first chapter to the story of the Crusades, which did not begin until 350 years after the battle. Victorian scholars drew a straight line from the Battle of Tours through the Crusades into European colonization of the Near East. Much of this history, but not all, was in service of empire itself. The story of jihad and crusade gave new meaning and justification to European imperial activities. It was easy to glorify Tours as a Western Christian victory, the Crusades' losses as a blow to Christian sovereignty in the Holy Land, and then 19th century colonization of Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, etc. as a Christian Western redemption. Authors like Raymond Ibrahim continue this through line into the 21st century, making tours the big bang of Islamic extremism in a post 9-11 world. Ugh. This is not to say that this through line isn't important. It's incredibly important because it made tours meaningful to crusaders and then tours and the crusades meaningful to Victorian colonialists and so on and so forth. For example, there is the 11th century uh, French epic poem titled The Song of Roland, which illustrates this quite well. 
Roland was a real historical Frankish military officer in Charlemagne's army. He was killed by Basques in 778 during Charlemagne's mobilization against the Umayyads. Remember, Charlemagne was allied with the Muslim Abbasids when he fought the Umayyad usurper. But Roland's story was reconfigured and embellished by Crusade-era epic poets. This 11th century retelling cast Roland as a Christian proto-crusader who was martyred by Muslims. In short, the Song of Roland used revised and misinterpreted Carolingian history in order to vilify Muslims and justify crusader activities, exactly how the Victorian historians rewrote the Battle of Tours in order to justify their colonization of Muslim nations. So if the Jihad Crusade interpretation of the Battle of Tours is not a very accurate one, how can we interpret the battle? And was it a contingent moment, as all of the Crusader and Victorian era historians suggest? Or was it possibly unimportant, as suggested by Constable and Palmer? Honestly, this is still up for debate. One interesting interpretation we found was that described by historian Marsha Robinson in her Disobedient Histories in Ancient and Modern Times. Robinson describes the Battle of Tours as another chapter in a long durée history of competing world systems. These world systems are not Christian Europe versus Muslim Near East, as you might expect. Robinson refers to the North Sea world system and the Mediterranean world system. The North Sea world system was populated by Norsemen and Germanics, and it centered on, as you guessed it, the North Sea. The Mediterranean world system, however, had a much longer and complex history. Robinson points out that, based on genetic analysis, North African Amazighs, or Berbers, had been migrating to Iberia and southern Gaul for millennia. First, they did so as part of Phoenician imperialism, with its headquarters in Carthage. So the Phoenicians were the ones who founded Carthage. Later, they did so as part of Greek and Roman colonization of the Mediterranean coasts. Using this world system approach, Robinson sees the Muslim Amazigh invasion of Iberia and southern Gaul as the reestablishment of the North African, Mediterranean, European trade systems, which had deteriorated after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Mm, that's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Robinson sees Aquitaine as a frontier for both the North Sea and the Mediterranean Sea systems, which explains why Count Udo was so crucial to the conflict at Tours. She makes the point that perhaps the contingent moment to focus on here was the collapse of Count Udo's alliance with Uthman. If the alliance between Udo, who had just declared independence from the Franks, and Uthman, who had just declared independence from the Umayyads, had ended more happily, Aquitaine would have been integrated into the Mediterranean Sea system. Aquitanian silver and gold would not have been subject to Umayyad taxation, since his access to the Mediterranean had rebelled against them, and this would have catapulted Aquitaine into incredible wealth and power. Perhaps more interestingly, the capital that Charles Martel used to gather his army would have drained southward instead, perhaps resulting in the dissolution of the Carolingian dynasty before it even began. We are used to assuming that this kind of multi-ethnic, multi-confessional state was unfeasible simply because it didn't happen. 
But subtracting the Crusades, European colonialism, and post-9-11 Islamic extremism from the interpretation, since none of those things had happened yet, paints a totally different picture. If Uthman's rebellion had been successful, as Abdi al-Rahman I's was less than a century later, and or Udo had not been subjugated by Charles Martel, Aquitaine may have been the seat of a powerful, wealthy, multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan state led by a cross-confessional alliance. In recent decades, the story of the Battle of Tours has been hijacked by alt-right activists in Europe and America. This hijacking began with Adolf Hitler, but we're going to bet that Hitler's view on Islam is not what you're expecting. At least it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, Drawing on the Jihad Crusade model of interpretation, Hitler regarded the Battle of Tours as a contingent moment of supreme importance. But rather than seeing it as a victory for the West, Hitler perceived Tours as a grave tragedy. He wrote, quote, it's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of the Japanese who regard sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good? The Mohammedan religion, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? End quote. Hitler's appreciation for Islam went beyond flowery language. The Third Reich treated Muslims in occupied areas relatively well, and they made an alliance with Palestinian ruler Haj Amin al-Husseini, promising Husseini that they would extend the final solution to Jews in North Africa and the Near East. Jesus Christ. Despite Hitler's little-known reverence for Islam, or perhaps because of it, contemporary alt-right groups in Europe and America have mobilized the jihad crusade interpretation of the Battle of Tours to argue for a common Western culture. Scholar Daniel Wallenberg argues that in a post-Holocaust world, biological racism has fallen out of fashion. As an attempt to rehabilitate alt-right ideology, Activists like Anders Bering Breivik have appealed to historical conflicts like the Battle of Tours, the Crusades, and the Battle of Vienna, which was between the Ottomans and the Holy Roman Empire, to argue for, quote, an eternal and unresolvable struggle between Judeo-Christian Western heritage and Islam. This, uh, quote-unquote, reformed alt-right draws heavily on the Clash of Civilizations thesis developed by Bernard Lewis and Samuel P. Huntington. This thesis is highly flawed, but it's a story for another episode, for sure. But this is a great example of how the Battle of Tours often means what we want it to mean based on our current agendas. Right, or... In this case, the alt-right's current agenda. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Not, so that, not saying that that is my agenda, but just that Correct. People, right. people with agendas it's, take it and make it mean what they want it to. Right. It's useful. It's right. useful in that way. Yeah. Historical memory is meaningful and valid. It tells us a lot about historical people's loyalties, motivations, and the organization of their worlds. But projecting our historical memory onto people of the past is not acceptable because it inaccurately determines motivations, identities, and meetings that did not exist. Marsha Robertson puts it so well, writing that, quote, Looking at history as the surprise that it was to the people who lived it requires that one put down the lens of contemporary politics, end quote. The best histories balance the lived experience of past people with meanings that we take from the events they lived through. Uh, 
This balance looks different for every historian and for every history. That's why we go through rigorous peer reviews. But there's one thing that trained historians can agree on, and these are the words of historian William A. Green. Quote, Period frontiers can become intellectual straitjackets that profoundly affect our habits of mind, the way we retain images, make associations, and perceive the beginning, middle, and ending of things. So, remove the straitjackets, listeners. Set yourself free. Yeah. I love that as a way to finish this um, this like mini-series on contingency within the, the five Cs. Just, that is such a... I think as academic historians, sometimes we sort of take for granted um, the the training that we've had and the, the many years of thinking and reading and whatever that trains us out of thinking that way, right? Mm-hmm. And even then, yeah. it's very hard to do, right? It's very hard yeah. to get your, <laughs> your brain to be able to think in terms of contingency in that way and to take into consideration all of the many you know, complicated factors of the moment rather than sort of relying on what we think we already know about right. this yeah. battle, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's why this is also complicated is because it happened, what, like 1,300 years ago or whatever. And so right. it um, there's so many layers of sources. There's the sources that were created at the time, right. which were not super right. accurate, but tell us something. And then there's sources that were created at the time of the Crusades that were kind of mobilizing this for some reason. Basically, the reason it's so complicated is because the historiography goes back 1,300 years, as opposed to just going right. back 150 years or whatever, if we're talking about, um, you know, the... Uh, civil war or something you know what i mean Um, totally so it's yeah 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 that makes it so and there's there's language differences there's you know there's the differences of like the regions Mm -hmm. right like we were constantly having to say like aquitaine which is this area of france (laughs) but this is before france existed you know all of that so deeply affects your ability to make sense of what the battle of tours was actually about Mm -hmm. that like if you don't know a huge number of things you you can't actually understand that battle right does that make sense yeah exactly and that's and that's what it kind of came down to that's why it was so difficult to do this because i was trying to peel back all of those layers of historiography to get at okay what was happening at the time right and i relied on historians that are much smarter than me and who who you know focus on this area of history as their profession um to try to figure out what that was and it, it really just looks like this was you know, not a concerted effort by the Muslims to take over all of Europe. They didn't really want Europe. Right. They thought Europe was kind of annoying right. and weird. Um, and it looks like in terms of Martel, it wasn't him trying to be this Christian hero or whatever. Um, it was just him right. going to the church because they had the money and just defending the land that he was trying to, to rule over, you know. Um, and I right. think that yeah. the simplest explanation is probably the most accurate one, you know, Um but when it comes to what the Battle of Tours means, then that is where the more complicated conversation comes up. And that's important. I think it's important to talk about, you know, historical memory and what it means. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And as much as we try to not use contemporary politics to inform our interpretations, we will. We Because we have to. Because we're humans and we're we're mm-hmm. just you know we're subjective and we are living in our context so that's uh, uh, that's going right. to automatically impact 
the way we interpret things, right? And like we say here at right. DIG, like we always want to do history that matters, right? So when we do mm-hmm. history, we're doing it because it means something to us, right? And so that is yeah. not in itself a bad thing. But when you project those meanings onto people for whom it doesn't ring true, then that's kind of where the problem comes up, you know? Right. So you, yeah. we can say yeah. things right. like, this is what Taurus means to us, right? But that doesn't mean that mm-hmm. that is what Taurus meant to Charles or to Udo or whoever, right? Um, right. There's just yeah. that slight difference that you have to, that, that caveat that you have to, I think, integrate into the best histories. The best histories are the ones that do both of those things. Right. Yeah. And and such a good reminder, too, that that there is a... I mean, I don't want this to sound sort of <laughs> elitist, but that, like... There is actually sort of like a discipline and a skill to history, right? Yeah. Because um, this, this is really complicated and um, it isn't just a straightforward recitation of names and dates, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, like, in order to understand this battle and the way that people talk about it today, you have to unpack, like you said, like, what, 1,300 years of ways that this battle has been interpreted, not just the facts of the... You have to do that, too. You have to have the facts of the, the time, the facts of the battle. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's... the it, it, it speaks to how tricky and complicated and sort of well-read you have to... You know, how tricky and complicated this stuff is and how well-read you have to be in order to disentangle all of that. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that people who aren't classically trained historians can't figure this stuff out because they, sure, they can, sure. but they often don't <laughs> based on right. based on my experiences, right? They are especially vulnerable to not doing this right, you know? Yeah. Um, even though some yeah, of them exactly. do happen to, to kind of get it right, I think. Right. And I think that that's that's where I think I put the responsibility less on the average person and more on the people who seize upon these histories and turn them into sort of political, um, political, I don't know what you'd call it, political things, right? Political, political ammunition, touchstones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you know, like, I I mean, I, not to (laughs) compare it to the civil war, but it happens in terms of the civil war all the time, right? Where like a new book comes out by somebody from a certain p- political perspective, making a point about something in modern politics, but using a battle or a war or a, an issue as like the centerpiece, right? Mm-hmm. And like an average person just reads it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're like they're just taking in that information, and they don't, you know, they aren't like it's not their fault necessarily. Mm-hmm. They're being, like, sold something. Right. And they're not necessarily trained or, like, even interested in um, questioning that and and critiquing it in the ways that we're trained to, like, tear that stuff apart. You know what I mean? Right. Because they're... Yeah. Yeah. I I think that because there is a lot of pressure to, like, you know, history is history. Mm -hmm. How dare you? (laughs) How dare you uh, change our history? How dare you? Whatever. You know what I mean? Like... This is this is not to be questioned. Like, of course, you know, and then if you do question it, then it's like, I don't know, you have a um, you're the one with the, the agenda. Right. It's you know? sort of like I always tell my students, like, question everything. Question me. 
Mm-hmm. Question every text you read. Question right. me. Question your parents. Question your teachers in high school. Question them. I don't think right. questioning things is disrespectful. Um, it shows right. that you're engaging, right. you know? Um, right. To me, what's yeah. disrespectful is You want to learn more. Yeah, it's just sort of, um, you know, accepting accepting things kind of rotely and just memorizing them just because you don't care. That's kind of disrespectful. Right. Accepting the first narrative, the the first narrative that you're presented with and then never, (laughs) never thinking about it again. Right. Right. And then being incredibly offended when somebody's like, well, actually, that's not exactly how that worked. You know? Right. Exactly. And making, you know, kind of committing that sin of thinking that that you know everything, you know, and that's sort of like Uh what grad school does is it teaches you. It humbles you and tells you, explains to you how little you actually know, right? And oh my god! I even yeah, feel okay. I feel very, you know, I'm well read and well educated, and I'm really interested in these things. And I teach Western Civ, you know, and at a college level. And even I, when I was going to research the Battle of Tour, I was just like, oh my god, I'm learning oh, what yeah. I don't know, you know, which is right. oh my so god. much. Yeah, totally. So the more I learn, the more I realize I know very little, you know. And I yeah, think it's some yeah. of those people who <laughs> don't study history, who just accept these um, these kind of mainstream narratives, they're not having that experience of finding out what they don't know. And so that is why they are right. the loudest and they're the most certain that they're right, because they've never right. had to be yeah. humbled <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> totally. Okay. So... Go to our uh, website, digpodcast.org. You can follow us on all the socials, dig underscore history. We also have teaching resources um, on our website, as well as full out like lesson plans. And you should check out our merch. You can get that also through our website. And we have um, a Facebook page um, called Dig History Pod Squad. If you're interested, we've recently revived our Instagram. So please go to Instagram, dig underscore history. And it's awesome. Please engage with us because that helps yeah. us be discovered by folks who who can use, you know, some some dig in their lives. Um, yes, very much. And thank you to our, our intern, Dante, oh, yes. who is doing amazing mm-hmm. things yep. with that account. Like we're really we're very impressed and we're we're old fuddy-duddies now and we don't know how to do those true. things as well so she's that's awesome true. okay um that's it bye okay goodbye there were no mosques halal butch oh my god butchers <laughs> <laughs> umayyad forces were generally led by arab generals generally led by arab generals haha <laughs> Okay, that's <laughs> Most of the conflict occurred in Austrasia. Wait. Blah, blah. <laughs> you know what? That's funny. The man what? Palace. Carl. <laughs> I guess. Uh, God damn it, Carl. <laughs> they called this Terriad. Oh my God. Back to Francia. Francia. It's Francia. It's Francia. It's, um. You're killing me. It's called, it's Francia, hard C. <laughs> yeah, but you haven't mentioned Francia. Yeah, because it didn't exist yet. He's in the process of making it Francia. Yeah, but you just called it. Francia. All right, fine. Just say Austrasia then. I, I, it doesn't, I don't really care. He did go to Austrasia, but at that point, Austrasia was part of Francia, so. Holy shit. These are so, this is so many words and places.
I know. I told you. I told Sarah. I told you. It's. I know, Sarah, I told you when I sat down to do this, I was like, this will be simple because medieval history is, is simple as f The least simple thing that you have ever written. <laughs> I know. I know. I agree.